And so a lot of people in the past have suggested that quartz is something that a curling stone shouldn't have, right? And actually, one important part of a granite or a granite-like rock is that it should have quartz. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I am okay. Did you have fun for Olympic Day? I did. You know, I did the uh, the IOC's Olympic Channel Olympic Day workout, which was... Oh, and you had a, a host of choices because they did... No, it was know... it was an interval training thing. So every athlete did a different exercise. Oh, well, I did not do that. What did you do? I did recovery. So I, <laughs> I'm still trying to heal this ankle. So I was in the ice bath. Okay. I was, you know, using my Arnica. I was, <laughs> so I definitely got the Olympic trainer experience for <laughs> Olympic day. I feel like I needed to call Dr. O'Connor and say, I need, you have another patient Aww. waiting for you. <laughs> this thing is just not getting better i think it's because you know when athletes talk about how when you get older mm -hmm. it takes much longer to heal i remember i sprained my ankle when i was in second grade two days before like some cute little gymnastics show that i was in mm -hmm. and i went and did it no problem wow now i can't even go grocery shopping Aww. like two weeks later i'm still dragging it around like quasimodo it's just it's not good Oh, well, I hope the, the Olympic spirit has touched your ankle. Those ice baths are awesome, by the way. Oh, yeah? I mean, it might have given me a heart attack, but that really worked. So watching all those Olympic interviews with the athletes in the ice bath definitely inspired me to, to take care of my injury properly. <laughs> well, speaking of ice bath, we are going to hit the ice today. It's been warm here, so feel like a little winter sports action would be helpful. And we oh, are talking so? curling. Probably one of our favorites. Yes. Today we're talking with Derek Wong, who is a graduate student pursuing a research master's in geology, and his focus is on the damage evolution of curling stones. He's been studying this at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, home of curling stone magic. And he's originally from Canada, and he also competes in curling for Team Hong Kong. We saw his slow-mo video of curling stones colliding and had to talk with him about his research. Take a listen. First off, why did you want to study curling stones? So I've been interested in minerals since probably kindergarten, and I got into curling in uh, primary school. And so geology is one of those really nice topics where um, it's really about connecting between different subjects. And so it just happened one day that I thought about uh, connecting geology and curling together, and that was curling stones. So that's how the research really came came together, and why I want to do why I want to research curling stones. So you're a curler as well. Yes. Yeah. Because you're Canadian, so it kind of goes with it. It's like if you don't play hockey, you have to curl. You... <laughs> Pretty much, I like to think that. <laughs> yeah, you get you have to pick one at like age five, and they give you the the proper ice for it. 
But let's talk about the curling stones themselves. They all come from one place, two places? Yeah, so it depends on who you're asking, but I would probably say two places. The, the stones that are used for international competitions only come from two places. So there's Elsa Craig, which is uh, just on the west coast of Scotland. So that's the Firth of Clyde. And then there's Trevor, which is on, I always like pronouncing this because it's Welsh, uh, the Llyn Peninsula, so that's the double L sound in Welsh. Um, and that's in North Wales. And it's really just these two places that produce curling stones that pretty much are used around the world. They're, they're quite standard for the stones around the world. Okay, so what makes these stones so special? What kind of that's, rock that's is it? That's a great it? question. And that's one thing that I, I've really tried to understand. Um, so I also did my undergraduate thesis on these rocks, which is why um, doing my master's was sort of a, an upgrade or an extension to the project. But it, it's hard to say because really in order to figure out why these rocks are so, whether or not these rocks are unique and what makes them unique, we really need to know what the rocks are first. So we need to develop a baseline. And then we need to know how, like the structure of the rocks uh, influences certain parts of the rocks, right? Or the stones. Uh, and then we can figure out how, like whether or not there are specific properties that are unique to the stones. So I can't give you a definite answer right now because I'm still trying to figure that out, of course. But the first part was really trying to build up that baseline so that we could eventually answer this question. But what I did find out from my undergraduate thesis, so my undergraduate thesis was really a, a mineralogical and, and textural study. So we looked at what kinds of minerals were in the rocks and how they were related to each other, so their textures. So one thing I did find out was that most of these rocks are, are granitoid. So they're granite-like rocks. So if you think of your counter, people always call everything granite, but like uh, actually generally they're a very part of a very broad group of rocks called granite-like rocks or granitoids. But these rocks are actually quite common in the crust, right? Or in, in on the earth. So if we're walking around, chances are we'll we'll see a granite-like rock. But there are some other things like the rocks tend to have a certain grain size, so they're a little bit more smaller grains, so you can just barely see the grains. But there's a difference in the, the size of the grains as well within the different rocks. But then one thing that I found was quite interesting was that there's a mineral called quartz, and uh, it's in many, many rocks. It's a very common mineral. Um, usually we, when we think of quartz, we think of glass, right? Glass is very brittle and tends to break. And so a lot of people in the past have suggested that quartz is something that a curling stone shouldn't have, right? And actually, one important part of a granite or a granite-like rock is that it should have quartz. But what I found is that in these rocks, they actually do have quartz, uh, which really challenges this sort of long idea that we've always had that um, quartz is not present or is bad for these curling stones. Well, wait, so why do people think that quartz wouldn't be good for a curling stone? Because it breaks too much and would break the stone? Exactly. So there's two parts of curling stone. There's the running surface, which is on the bottom of the stones, and that influences the, the curling action of the, the stones when, when they go on the ice, uh, when they slide on the ice. And then there's the striking band, which is where curling stones actually hit each other. And so a lot of people have thought that, oh, because these, rock, these stones are hitting each other, that the quartz, if it's in the striking bands or parts of the stones, um, that the quartz will actually break and then will encourage the, the stone to break. At a small scale. Okay, so, oh my God, I'm like so excited about this. I can't even. 
what do curlers say makes a stone good or not good? Like, do curlers have different preferences for how the stone feels? Like, for example, if they're getting a poor quality stone, what does that mean to them? So I think the big problem with stones, especially on a competition level with, with athletes trying to figure out what's going on, is that so not all stones are the same, right? So um, that running band that I talked or the running surface on the bottom of the stones, it's actually like a, a disc. So it's really thin disc. It's only about maybe five or six millimeters wide. But that disc isn't necessarily exactly the same in all of the stones. And so that means that the stones will behave slightly differently between the stones in each set. So in uh, one set, there's eight stones. And so basically on one sheet of ice, you have eight stones and eight stones for each, uh, each color, right? So each player throws two stones, okay? They deliver two stones. But if those stones are quite different, so if they curl differently, uh, so one curls like two feet more than the other, or one is much faster, so they require like less force to, to make the stone go as far, then what ends up happening is that it's very difficult to balance that and actually remember that, oh, this stone's different than this stone. So generally, athletes try to match the stones, try to get them so that both of the stones that they're throwing in their set are similar. Um, so what I, what I would say is that for competition playing, generally what we're looking for is stones that are consistent. When you're warming up for a tournament, is that when everybody just figures out the stones that they have on that sheet of ice and tries to work out what is the what? Yeah, so basically in a competition, usually there's a pre-tournament practice so you get to play on every sheet for a certain amount of time and so in that case you can do some of the matching but generally uh, there's also another practice which is immediately before the game that you're playing and then you get to throw exactly the set of stones that you want to throw so that's usually when people tend to uh, sorry there's another practice that is at the end of the day and that's usually about, I forget how long it is, but then that's one time that you can actually get one athlete to throw all the stones and then see how, how they differ, right? So that's called matching stones. Um, and then you can also practice a bit before the game, but usually there's m other things that uh, you can work on, like such as understanding the ice conditions or practicing for the, the draw to the button. So at the, end, at the end of the practice, you draw to the button and whoever it's closest uh, they actually get to uh, have the hammer for the, the game. So that's actually really important, too. Right? The hammer is the last stone in the first end. Are there curlers who are total divas about their stones? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, this one doesn't feel right, and you go and yeah. you throw it, and you're like, there's nothing different. What is there, wrong with you? I think there's definitely a combination of the stones being slightly different and the mindset of the athletes as well. Now, I think a lot of people can throw them very well and they can throw them very consistently, but ultimately we're not machines, right? <laughs> so. Okay, so you also use the high-speed cameras to capture when the two stones are hitting each other. And Jill and I watched that video, I think a few too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. <laughs> That was so. My first question is, where did that idea to use the high-speed camera come from? Is that just a standard thing that's used in geology? No, it's not standard at all in geology because usually in geology we're looking at very slow processes, not very fast ones. So that's quite unusual. 
but the reason why I wanted to use a high-speed camera was really because, um, so we're trying to understand the damage of these these stones, right? Um, and so sort of on some old stones, you'll see these uh, crescent or curved fractures, right? But in order to understand why they develop, we need to understand more about the stresses that are involved in the collisions, right? So what's actually, so ultimately it's these, these collisions that are causing um, the damage to occur, right? But in order to really understand that kind of damage, we need to understand how hard are these, these stones hitting each other. And uh, one easy way to do it is to look at, so stress is force over area, right? So then if we know the mass, the speed, uh, and the contact time, of the stones, then we can figure out the rest. But the contact time is a big problem because we can't see it, right? So I actually tried to use a GoPro at, I think, 240 frames per second, and it was like one frame. So that, that contact time is really crucial because if we don't know it, then basically that force could be anywhere from very small to very, very large. So that's why I use the high-speed camera. But we also found some really, really cool things like, for example, the dust coming off the stones that uh, in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense, but at the time, I hadn't thought of that on my radar at all. So how much is your average stone losing at every contact? Because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I haven't calculated it. <laughs> because you can, on those high-speed pictures, you see just dust flying everywhere. Yeah. And I know yeah. those are microscopic particles yeah. that are actually coming off. Yeah, so actually what I did was uh, later I took a toothbrush and I basically went over all of the striking band. And so I have a little packet of the, the powder that comes off the curling stones. Uh, but I haven't been able to analyze it yet because the labs have all been shut down uh, due to coronavirus. But that's sort of like one thing that I'm, I'm looking forward to doing for sure. <laughs> so when we find out how, when you're able to kind of determine how much rock is lost off of a stone, how that affects the game and how that affects the game like this year versus oh, I've had my stones for 25 years kind of thing. Yeah, I think the the weight loss, I don't know how significant it is, but I think it's a lot more when you actually go to maintain the stones. So the only way to maintain the striking band, so the sides of the stones, is that um, you have to grind down the, the stone. And so because there's a certain amount of uh, mass or weight that the stone can have in a certain uh, size, that means that you can basically do, I think, about three grindings before you get to the, the minimum weight or, like that's allowed for curling stones. So that's probably the more important part, the reason why the weight changes. But we can see that, for example, the speeds of the stones will change when they're uh, new versus old. Uh, but another thing that will change is that how the stones react to each other. Um, so once they hit each other, what they do. So there's sort of a term called like live stones and dead stones. So uh, a lot live stones, after they uh, strike another stone, they tend to continue going very far, um, whereas dead stones, they tend to not really move that much. Um, so generally, newer stones tend to be more alive, and uh, it's been suggested it's because they have, like, they're heavier, right, at the start, so they have more, more force or more momentum when they hit each other. Mm -hmm. I wish someone could just hit me and I'd lose weight. <laughs> That would be awesome. Here, here. Just slide me across the ice and boom! Pounds go flying off. So maybe going back a little bit, one of the things you had done in some of your research was look at this study 
that was in uh, 1890, which was the first the first and last time, it seems like, that there'd been a baseline of curling stones taken. And there's many that are obsolete. So do you know, like, why they were used for curling in the first place and how they became obsolete? So I think uh, why they became used in the first place, that's probably because uh, curling is a Scottish sport. And so there's lots of rocks in Scotland. So basically people were taking uh, whatever stones that they could find around Scotland to use for curling stones. But later on, they started standardizing the stones, so making match sets. So, sorry, but prior to this, actually, uh, stones could be different shapes and sizes. And so I think around the early 1800s, early to mid 1800s, they started making match stones. And predominantly those match stones were actually from Elsa Craig. And so that's probably why they shifted from using many different types of stones to really using the Elsa Craig stones. And then the Welsh came in and said, no, we want to use our stones too. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think it's so fascinating that they're so particular about the stones and all the stones come from one place. And it, it makes sense in a logical way that you want the uniformity, but it's a natural product. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a hockey puck that's being made to, with plastic and that it still has to be uniform, but it is kind of a living item and it changes and it doesn't grow, it shrinks, which is interesting. So what happens to a stone? Can a stone truly just like crack down the middle? Yeah, that's happened before, like multiple times. I've never seen it in person, but I have photos of, of stone breaking. I think normally when they crack straight down the middle, that's probably because there's been a defective, like a crack basically in the rock, a pre-existing crack. Otherwise, I think it's quite difficult to get that kind of like large scale crack go right through the rock. But yeah, that definitely can happen. Did you test both of the, the Welsh and the Scottish stones? No, so I only tested the, the Scottish stones. In Scotland, most of the stones are from Scotland, which makes sense. So I would like to test the Welsh stones, but at this point, I have to wrap up my master's. So, yeah. <laughs> That's for the PhD. That's the next step. You can go to Wales. I wish. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the, the care of stones and, and grind. Like, how often did they have to grind a stone to get the, the, the striking surface? The striking band, sorry. How often do they have to grind that striking band to make it even again? So I think normally over the stone, the, the course of a stone's lifetime, they can go through about two or three uh, maintenance cycles. Um, so that's grinding of the, the striking bands, but uh, that can also be grinding of the, the running surfaces as well to re reshape the running surfaces. Yeah. Okay. Do you, is there like an average of how often they would have to do one of these grindings or does it like it's take your regular curling club use which you know that's that's a fairly intensive season depending on the size of your club but would they have to is this something they'd have to do like once every 10 years or so so i think it ends up being around like once every 15 years at least oh, okay striking. okay yeah. when you're talking about a stone they're they're not cheap right no, they're not cheap. How how much are they? So they're uh, about 800 Canadian for one stone. So that's probably the, the most, um, well, depends, not including shipping, um, which means that 
for like an I HD wanna, I want to know the shipping like, on a set of stones now because that is heavy. Like 100,000 Canadian, I think, for an eight-sheet facility. So, yeah, it's quite substantial for sure. But the stones last many, many years, it sounds like. Yeah, as far as we know. <laughs> In one of your uh, videos, you did a Q&A, and you, you said that you had gotten one of these obsolete curling stones at an auction. Yep. Or several. I have it somewhere <laughs> under my bed. <laughs> I have questions. I have so many questions about this. How did a curling stone get up to auction, first off? And what so, or what was the auction? There was a curling club that was auctioning their old curling stones. And so they, I think it was the Patrick Curling Club, and they the auction house is in Glasgow. So they had like an online, well, so you could be in person, but you could also do it online. So um, I'm in Edinburgh, which is about an hour and a bit um, from Glasgow. And I decided to bid online and I got this stone. It's a Burnock water stone. So it's one of the obsolete stones that's um, mentioned in the 1890 paper. And yeah, it was a interesting decision. <laughs> Took the train to uh, Glasgow and then I got these stones. I put the one in my backpack and one in like a duffel bag. And I just walked back, walked back to the station, of course, <laughs> not to Edinburgh. So, <laughs> and then took the train back. I can't even imagine. That's a weightlifting exercise for you. <laughs> I've done it before, too, so it's a bit strange. <laughs> when you got them, you got, it's a set of two of the same stone. Yes, They're both burnout quarter. Yeah. Okay. So when yeah. you got them, like, what kind of geeking out did you do about the type of rock that those are? So I haven't looked much at the stones because the, the lab's closed again. Ah. Uh, but I, I definitely went back to the paper, checked the, the description, and then looked at these rocks just with my, with my eye. I actually didn't use a hand lens. I should probably, so like a magnifying glass. And then I just, just made sure that it, it was consistent w with what was called the Burnock water. But what I'm hoping to do is actually unfortunately cut one of them <laughs> and then see what it is yeah so i don't just have these two stones so when i visited uh, so i went to north wales to, and visited the quarry and i got one of the the blank stones so basically they they cut these so they 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 get these boulders right and then they slice them into slabs so like basically these almost like thick countertops okay and then they drill them so then they look they end up becoming like a cheese Okay, so I have one of those blocks, those cheeses, and I have like maybe three other samples of just the raw rock from, from Wales, from Trevor. And I don't even know how I'm going to bring that back. <laughs> still trying yeah, to how big is out. this this uh, rock wheel? I mean, how did you get that home? Or home to... Uh, so and... it's, it's just slightly larger than a curling stone. Basically, I had like a large carry-on. So the great thing about taking the train, uh, as opposed to taking like flying, is that when you're taking the train, uh, you're limited to three baggages, but you're not limited to weight. So as long as you can carry it, you can go on the train. <laughs> I, Derek, why really do you lift crazy. weights? I lift weights so I can go and schlep curling stones all over the country. <laughs> so I had three bags and I put like a curling stones amount of weight like in each one of them. And then uh, so... When I was in Bang, so I stayed in Bangor, which is um, maybe I think a forty-minute drive from Trevor, and 
where I stayed and the train station, it was probably like a 15 minute walk. And when I did it with all my curling stones, it probably took about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. So I had to stop every few minutes because like, like I, my suitcase was so heavy that I couldn't actually roll my suitcase. I was just dragging it on the ground and the wheels are like, like destroyed. (laughs) Cause remind us how heavy is one curling stone? So curling stone's about forty pounds or eighteen kilograms. Yeah. So so carrying. I should have chosen a, large a lighter, toddler. lighter mass mass project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't imagine any geology project is that light, really. That's I mean, true. you're talking yeah. about studying rocks. So unless you're doing like little mini cores of stuff, you're you're going to be the guy in the train station. <laughs> that's going to get stopped by police and said, what, what is in that bag, sir? You're like, Curling Actually, stones. that reminds me when I was like going on the train, uh, someone actually had to help me. So one of the um, staff helped me like take my, my suitcase. And I was like, be careful. It's really heavy. And he was like, what's in this? And I was like, curling stones. And he just looked at me like, like just perplexed. <laughs> well, you know, like you do. <laughs> it happens. One of the other things I wanted to ask was when you were uh, in one of your presentations, noticed the crescent-like hits w- when a stone gets old or has been hit around a lot. On that striking band, they get like crescent little nicks. Do you know what causes that? So uh, based on what I've done so far with my master's, I think what's going on is that essentially it's sort of like an imprint you could think of it as. Um, so when these stones are hitting each other, the contact is not a point. It's actually sort of like an oval, an ellipse-ish, or like a rounded rectangle. And so because of sort of the shape of the contact and the fact that the striking bands are not only curved, like round, um, I don't really know how to explain this. The striking bands are curved in 3D, okay? So they're not actually flat all the way around. They're actually uh, con- convex, so they, they point out. And so because of that shape, uh, when they hit each other, the forces or the stresses build up in such a way that there's tension near the, the the contact between these two stones. And so that's why they're sort of curved in 2D, because the, the contact itself is curved. So it's like, a, it's like an oval. So what I'm thinking is that basically it's a mix of this contact being a certain shape and also that uh, over the lifetime of, of a stone, they can hit each other a lot, right? So... When they first hit, you need a, probably quite a big impact because that starts fractures. And once you start fractures, it's very easy to make them continue. And so over their lifetime, because they have those fractures like that have started, um, any kind of hit after that will allow or will promote or, I guess, influence cracks from, uh, from continuing to form. So it's almost like a ski running through the stone. It sort of makes a groove. And then it's more likely to make another groove. So I would almost think of it as, as like, at least the first part is like, let's say you're hitting, like have, if, you, if you've ever done any, any kind of stamping, the way that you stamp is you, you basically put like a, uh, I forget what it's called, but you basically have a metal tool that has like a letter on it, right? And then you hit it in. And so basically when you're hitting it in, you're kind of making an imprint. But more more than that is that uh, once there's the imprint, um, you can actually 
it doesn't in, in this way the analogy doesn't really work but basically once something started it you can make it continue so oh it's it's like a kind of like a wedge right so once you have some, a little bit then you can continue that a little part uh, to continue forming yeah so like a crack wedge Does okay that make so sense? is there some no it absolutely makes sense so is there the what's the correct way to care then for a curling stone when these things are happening to it as far as i'm aware the only way to uh, correct for those those fractures developing is that you have to grind it away, right? Because we know that once these fractures start, they just keep on going and they go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so if we want to prevent that from happening, the only way we can do it is we need to catch it early-ish. So once we start seeing those fractures, and then we have to grind it off so that we get past where the damage is. So I have seen curlers wiping their stones. Is that just total waste of time and habit and superstition or does that actually do anything to the stone so that relates a lot to the running surface of the stones right so basically the running surface influences the curl influences where the stones go when we're um when we're delivering them and sometimes there can be a little bit of dirt underneath the stones um, so it's always important to make sure that that surface is clean because if there's a little bit of dirt then it could send the stone on a completely different path which is we call picking Okay. Uh, one of the other things you mentioned was that your work could relate to other industries like mining and construction. How, how so? So a lot of these uh, industries really focus on how rocks behave over time. So for example, in nuclear waste storage, uh, we want to make sure if we're putting nuclear waste into the ground, we're usually putting it in some kind of rock, right? Uh, we're storing it in some kind of rock. We don't want that rock to break because if that rock breaks, then the waste will come out and leak and then we'll have a like a natural disaster, right? So that's the time aspect with the curling stones. But because these rocks are underground or if they've been lifted overground, uh, they'll actually have stresses on them. So they'll have rocks that are like leaning on, on them from the top, sort of building them up. And so uh, these stresses actually cause like the potential for damage, right? So that's why it's sort of related to curling stones in that way. So it's really about the accumulation of damage. So how damage builds up in rocks, uh, which is similar between curling stones and um, other things like uh, mining. So usually the problem with mining is that these rocks, when they're buried in, with a lot of stress, they're fine sort of on their own. But once you put a tunnel into them, which is what you're doing with mining, right? You're actually digging a hole in the ground. That open surface now has stresses that are not balanced. So there are things like rock bursts that can happen where basically the the floor or any of the sides of the the shaft of the, the mine actually will come out, they'll explode, uh, which is really dangerous, right? And so that's an interesting way in terms of how curling stones are related to other other industries. But the curling is a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so my, my supervisor always jokes that uh, we're using curling as basically a really cool way to study rocks in a different way, but also relatable to like the real world. So when is your master's completed? So I'm supposed to finish in August, end of August. Okay. Yeah. Does that depend on when you can get back in the lab and stuff like that? Yeah, in part. Yeah. Um, mostly with what I have now, I can probably, I probably have enough to write up my master's, but it is nice to really round out the story and, and sort of fill in the missing gaps to that story for sure. So we'll see how that goes. 
round out like a curling stone. <laughs> so what is next once your master's is done? I've been accepted to do a PhD uh, back in Canada, but uh, I'm not going to do it on curling stones because doing a PhD on curling stones would be a little bit too much. I would like to continue working on curling stones, maybe sometime in the future. And um, certainly, like with any kind of science, the more you investigate something, the more questions you have for sure. But I'd, I'd like to try something new. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm actually going to look at, so it's a green mineral that's related to gold deposits. And so when people are exploring for gold deposits, they'll actually look for this green mineral or green coloration in the rocks. It's a very good indicator that there might be a gold deposit nearby. And so I'm trying to understand a bit more about uh, these minerals so that we can use them and sort of their, their chemistry, so their makeup, to determine whether or not there's like whether or not that area is prospective for gold. So it's quite different, but it's also using a lot of um, things that I've learned along the way. So for example, one thing that I'm hoping to do is maybe use the synchrotron for my study. So with my master's, I actually got the, the opportunity to go to a, like a leading edge world-class um, synchrotron facility. So a synchrotron is basically, it's a particle accelerator, so they accelerate electrons. And uh, so there's basically a magnet because electrons have a charge. I should, I should know this, but I can't really remember it right now. So you can use magnets to actually um, steer electrons and bend them along a, a, like a ring, right? But once these electrons, every time they change or they, they bend, they emit light. And that light is like an X-ray. So you can get really, really bright X-rays um, as opposed to like normal lab sources where you just have an element that's radioactive, basically sending out X-rays. And so because you can get very bright x-rays, you can get much more detailed data. So for example, with my master's, one thing that I was looking at was uh, CT, like uh, 4D CT. So basically we could image rocks as they were breaking, sort of like in a CT scanner that you might use at a hospital, that sort of idea. But we could literally like physically watch these stones break and image them as we deform them in a press. So there's a lot of really cool things that you can do with the synchrotron. And... I'm hoping to use those skills in, in this PhD as well, potentially. That's sort of the link between the two. So did you continue to curl while you've been in Scotland? So I've curled sort of locally uh, with some of the uh, clubs here and also the university um, club. It, it, it's very good to have a, like, different friends, you know, around, not only friends that are in your, your discipline, but also around. Uh, so it, it's been really great. Uh, it's been honestly really really welcoming everyone in in edinburgh especially in the curling community are really welcoming um, in terms of competitive curling uh, there's actually a clause in my visa that states that i can't be a competitive athlete and so i wasn't able to compete this year but it's okay i think to take a break sometimes and sort of think about what you want to do right so it's bittersweet for sure not being able to compete um, and actually there are a few competitions uh, in scotland uh, where my friends uh, ended up competing, and it was it was hard, but also uh, nice at the same time to to watch my friends compete. So here's the important question: the difference between Canadian curlers and Scottish curlers. So one big difference is the word stone. Okay, so Scots will only say curling stone, whereas uh, Canadians will say curling rock or curling stone. That's why whenever I write. I always have to catch myself because 
uh, if I want my writing to be uh, readable by everyone, then I should write curling stone all the time because everyone will understand curling stone, whereas not everyone will understand what a curling rock is. Um, and even when I speak, I always catch myself. I said rock. I should say stone. Uh, there's other things like the curling language is quite different. So when I when I started curling in Scotland, I mean it's not quite different, but there there's little things like, uh, for example, normally I would say that a stone curls more than another stone, but they might say that it draws more, and that that really catches me because usually when I say draw, it draws a type of shot where you're basically trying to get behind a guard, but you're trying to get as close as you can to the center of the house, right? Usually depends on the shot. And they would say this draws, they would be using it as a verb. And I was like, I'm so confused. This like, I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't like something's wrong. <laughs> so there's a lot of language terms that are slightly just slightly different. One thing that really surprised me actually was, was that because curling is a, a Scottish sport, so it originated in Scotland, I thought curling would be like, like, uh, very very popular in Scotland and I actually found out that they have about I think 19 curling rinks which is nice but it, it's really weird because I was thinking oh there's gonna be so much curling and even in Edinburgh there's only one curling club so I think the tough part about like maintaining curling I think like with getting the youth engaged in, in sport is is a problem worldwide not just in Canada as I've seen but also in Scotland too. Thank you so much, Derek. Derek has a YouTube channel called Minerals Rock. You can see his slow-mo research in action there. He also has a GoFundMe page to help defray the costs of studying abroad, which are pretty pricey for his uh, the research he's been doing. And we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. We have had some geeky interviews before, <laughs> but I think this was us at our true geekiest selves <laughs> when we both saw the slow-mo i think you saw the slow-mo video first and sent it to me immediately and i just watched it over and over again and watched the particles flying off and got totally fascinated i sent this to my sister who is also a curler and she got totally excited i said and i'm interviewing the guy who's doing this he's like oh you gotta forward me that link so this is truly our, our geekiest interview, and that makes me so proud. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Uh, this was so interesting because it was something I had never considered, and I didn't realize that. It, and I know what he's talking about when you see the curling stones and you see those little crescent-shaped cracks that start forming, and I didn't realize that you could grind those down and keep the stones going, and that how how different stones are and you know how you have to try to get to know them as best you can and match them for for the play you have to do oh it's just it was so interesting but yes it's, do you have to buy the rocket drink first i don't know <laughs> does it you know you get to know each other over a pint so how do you like to be thrown <laughs> all right let's move on should we see what's up with our team keep the flame alive absolutely Welcome to Shiklastan. A lot of great news from our Shiklastanis this week. Terry Hedgepeth, our USOPC archivist emeritus, she has published an article called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, the USOC, the Carter Administration, and the 1980 Olympic Games Boycott in Olympica, the International Journal of Olympic Studies. So I may have to get my hands on a copy of that. 
congratulations to our video journalist, Sean Callahan, who won an Emmy, the National Academy of Arts and Sciences, Boston, New England, Boston, New England Division, awarded Sean and Phil Lightbuff for outstanding news specialty report, Health and Science, for the story, Are Delta Uniforms Making People Sick? We'll see if we can find a link to that and put that in the show notes. And then our photographer, Lou Jones, documented the pandemic in Boston, and you can see that on socialdocumentary.net. Athletes may not be competing, but all of our games makers have been busy, busy, busy. That's right. That's right. Some Paralympics news. The National Paralympic Heritage Trust has created some free virtual tours of its national exhibitions. And this is part of the National Paralympic Heritage Center that's at the Stoke Mandeville Stadium in Stoke Mandeville, UK, which is where the birthplace of the Paralympic Games is. And it sounds really cool because they made this with virtual in mind. So the exhibits are 3D and it allows you to zoom in on different uh, elements and they have different capabilities to uh, use video and sign language and text captioning and audio descriptions. So it sounds really cool. And then here in the U.S., it's funny because NBC Sports is airing a whole week of Paralympic primetime replays. About time. Absolutely. That's all I have to say. About time. I think the Paralympics are just getting a lot more exposure. Which is good. Which is really, really good. So that is something to check out. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And so in other Olympic news, the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco has removed a bust of former IOC president Avery Brundage from its foyer because of concerns over his racist legacy. So his bust was there, I assume, because he was a patron of this museum in in some. Yes. So so we've got stories from both Inside the Games and the New York Times and He was its founding patron, and this museum was established in 1966 to house his pieces. He had nearly 8,000 pieces of art. That he acquired from Asia? Don't. I I don't know. (laughs) So it's interesting because the bust is going to be put into storage, and... Some uh, the New York Times is saying that some Asian American artists argue that the museum presents Asian art from a mostly white perspective because it's his collection, which is interesting. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting that he's been dead for many, many years at this point and that the museum has not evolved past that initial development that since it started as his collection and what he chose and how he collected it. That legacy has continued. Yeah, any, and it any way that we get rid of Avery Brundage is is okay. A good right. idea is in my book, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the IOC thinks about all of this and how they deal with the Brundage legacy themselves. I should not hate Avery Brundage as much as I do, but I just cannot tolerate him and his legacy and his attitudes, and it makes me crazy. And I I totally admit that I'm completely unprofessional when it comes to Avery Brundage. And if he were here, I would punch him in the nose. Far out. <laughs> Maybe I'd hit him with the bust. <laughs> yeah, oh, we, we got to do some work on Avery Brundage, though, just to examine him further. And it'd be kind of interesting to examine 
what his legacy has done. Although that, you know, let me give myself another side project or five to do. So um, the museum director, Dr. Zhu, uh, said they knew of Brundage's Olympic history, but they didn't find out until 2016 when they, the museum was preparing for its 50th anniversary that they realized how much of a racist and anti-Semite he was. Reading probably through the old letters and through some of the archives. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, you don't have to dig too far. Right. And they, yeah. <laughs> it's not like he was covering up his opinions or dressing them up or, or gilding the lily. He was pretty out there. Oh, well, good on them that they're correcting that now. Yeah. Inside the Games uh, reports that the museum has removed his name from museum initiatives, but they need to still address the history in a fully open and transparent way. So this was this is just a beginning. So they're going to to work and evolve the museum. But there's an artist named uh, Shirag Bhatta, who is uh, from the Bay Area in San Francisco, and took a selfie in front of the bust and says, hello, anyone home? It's garbage day. <laughs> and then this may be your new best friend because he drew a little uh, devil horns on Avery and put 666 over him, over the, over his head. Wow. Yeah. I don't even know if I would quite go that far. Mm. But I might. So it'll be interesting to see what what the museum does and continues to do to examine this. The other thing I'm thinking is, is something that you sort of mentioned in passing was how is the IOC and especially the U S OPC going to deal with its history and going to, I mean, we've said this many times that the Olympics in general and specific Olympic events reflect the society in which it's, it, it happens, the time, the place, Mm -hmm the events. So you can't eliminate that history because it's history. It happened. It's what it is. And how do you reckon with it and move forward? Right. And learn from it because there's elements of learning from that history in a way that doesn't make people like remind people of some really bad stuff or trigger, trigger things. And what makes me think of this is I think in Richmond where they had the the little stone on the corner where they sold slaves and that's been removed and it's going to be put into a museum because it's an important piece of history to remind us that this is how white people treated black people in this country. But seeing it on the corner every day kept just reminding black people of how they were mistreated throughout history. Right. So and certainly the IOC has plenty to reckon with <laughs> <laughs> on many levels, you know, racism, sexism, you know, all kinds of things. So I'm interested and I'm, I'm especially interested and I hope some of it happens under T-Bock because I think he's a very thoughtful man. Mm-hmm. His ego feels like it doesn't get in the way of making good decisions so I think he's a good person to be at the helm at this moment. I hope. Hope so, too. I guess history will tell. 
Shiva Keshavan would be even better. <laughs> I am totally pushing for him to get on the darn IOC committees. I, would agree I want with you him running that. something very big and important. I know, I know. And I know he's been he's been doing some work in India about Winter Olympics and trying to build that up in within India as um uh, a different option for athletes in that country. So hopefully that gets off the ground so that he can move on to bigger things. Well, I mean, like, he can add IOC stuff on the side. Shiva can do it. Yeah. He can slide down roads in India on that little <laughs> scooter version of the luge. He could do anything. That's right. Fearless. All right. Well, I think that will wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think of the geology of curling stones. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. I'm so confused. Just like, I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't, like, something's wrong. <laughs>